to America now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you're with us or you're with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. Never it's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Buck Sexton here with you all now. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, we've got a lot of news today, a lot of things I want to talk to you about you have the well it's tax day which i'm i'm going to go off a bit on how this should be much more upsetting particularly to conservatives than it is uh, but it is tax day or your taxes are due what's it due today i guess that we got an extension right Ooh, the government's so kind to us they gave us an extension for uh, the privilege of paying the money to take from us under threat of force uh, we also have a congressional election in Georgia that is getting really hyped up and, oh my, some interesting developments uh, in that over the course of today. Also, the left is trying to turn up the heat on Trump releasing his tax returns. That once again has, I suppose they've run out of Russia collusion stories for the time being or they're, they're waiting until they can spring some of those on the public. Talk to you a bit about the uh, Facebook, uh, the Facebook so-called Facebook killer. This individual who streamed a a murder on Facebook um, and has now been killed himself by police, uh, and the response to that about social media and and some bigger lessons that I want to draw about what the responsibility or the whether there should be a responsibility or not on in the hands of these digital tech titans uh, to be policing content um, and and where that line is and, and how we should discuss it. And also Chelsea Clinton on the magazine cover. Well, we'll get into that a bit. So we have a, lo- a lot to discuss today and I uh, would very much like to hear from all of you as well. But in, in, uh, in the meantime, or, or right off the bat, uh, before I get into a long and somewhat aggravated rant on taxes there is uh, breaking news just happening the last couple hours out of california uh tragic uh, horrible news uh, something that we've seen before like this and we'll see again in the future you have a a shooter he is this is now it's all alleged of course right we have to say that for legal reasons but uh, a shooter killed three people in fresno california he yelled, uh, Allahu Akbar, and has told police since he was in custody, he turned himself in after the shooting spree, has told police that he uh, hates, quote, hates white people. This all according to Fox News. We don't know that much more about it. 16 shots fired during uh, the shooting spree. So it began around 10.45 a.m. Pacific time. Uh, so there were th- so this is earlier in the day today three people uh, three people shot and killed in Fresno, California. 
there are a couple of ways to look at this right off the bat. I mean, one, you will see so much. Of course, there's nothing but uh, tragedy for those who were killed in their families and, and our hearts go out to them and it's just horrific. And then you'll also see the battling media narrative over this, the, the back and forth over what should get focus. Now, you'd think this is very straightforward. You'd think that this is uh, this could not be uh, something that would be uh, automatically politicized right off the bat. You have a terrible shooting. It seems like there was uh, racist and possibly jihadist motive. I, I noticed the Associated Press has included just of its own volition, decided to put a quote from a local imam in the AP, Associated Press, wire that goes out to all these different news organizations with the basic facts of the case. Uh, And we are being told by the Associated Press, well, that that an imam is offering his solace to the the families of those who have been killed or or shot today, Uh, three killed and then others wounded. Uh, why is there this inclusion? Let me just step back for a moment here. Every time there is one of these uh, incidents that doesn't fit a narrative of uh, hateful um, white male mass shooter, uh, every time that happens, uh, there is this change in the way the media approaches the story. They're very they'll be very slow to identify the motive. Well, we can't really know the motive. The Associated Press tweeted out before that the individual screamed out, God is great. I know that that uh, is the I actually studied Arabic for a couple of years. Uh, I know what the translation of Allahu Akbar is, but it does to some seem a bit strange that they wouldn't. We we know from the news. Unfortunately, we know from jihadist attacks all over the world. Uh, We know from suicide bombings, uh, what the jihadist screams before. The violent and vile act tends to be Allahu Akbar. So we're quite familiar with the phrase. So on the one hand, they're saying it's God is great. Other places uh, said that God is great in Arabic. But everyone who watches this takes away certain uh, inclinations from the way from how this is reported in the press. And I tell you this, if this were well, if this were a Democrat administration, You might very well hear from the president himself, as was the case uh, after the Chattanooga shooting, which was clearly a jihadist terrorist attack. And it took them days to even begin to really focus in on how it was terrorism. But it was a mass shooting and the the gun becomes the problem under Democrat administrations. As though we have to worry as that's the issue. That's what has to be focused on. That is a an easy one for them to immediately go to because they have a policy preference here. That's what happens. You, you see how a mass shooting turns into a battle of uh, journalist narratives and journalist policy preferences under the guise of just presenting the facts. And people see this and they understand it and they know that's why they can't trust the media. They see, the, the agenda is very obvious in these cases. Um, I remember being over at uh, CNN after mass uh, mass casualty terrorist attacks that were clearly perpetrated by a muslim acting as a acting in the name of jihad as a jihadist and it couldn't have been more obvious we knew plenty of facts already and they'd bring me on they'd say well fuck what do you think about this there, there was a mean voicemail that a that a mosque received after this attack i said well there are dozens of people that have been killed there could be other members of the cell 
at large. We have counterterrorism services trying to get greater cooperation from you know, Interpol, the U.S., whatever the case may be. But there's a script that they go to when the shooter is a non uh, is non-white and uh, the shooter doesn't fall into the narrative that they, they like to run with, which is, you know, a, a white supremacist or a uh, a person who's you know, m- m- tied to a militia or right wing terrorism. If it's right wing terrorism, we get to find out, you know, quote unquote, right wing terrorism. We get to find out every factoid about that person right away. There, there's no delay. There's no, oh, hold on a second. We, we don't know all the facts here. When it is, as I said, uh, outside of that, when it doesn't seem to be someone who is uh, acting as what could be construed as right-wing terrorism, then all of a sudden there's this oh, delay, and we're not really sure. We don't know what, We don't know what the motive is here. We don't know what the problem is here. Let's wait till all the facts come out. And then when the facts do come out, when they become irrefutable, when it becomes absolutely obvious that this was someone who believed to be they, this individual that yelled Allahu Akbar may well have thought of himself as a devout Muslim. I, I don't pretend to referee who's devout and who's not. But the point here being when it is absolutely clear. Then the story trails off and you won't hear much about it. Uh, another aspect of this as well, when it is a perpetrator who is, uh, when it is a, a mass shooting like this or a multiple fatality shooting, when the perpetrator is white, uh, there will inevitably be a dissection of the politics around this individual. No matter how crazy, deluded, backwards he may be. Uh, they will act as though there's a much there's a a broader theme and you can take lessons from this. And, oh, it's the it's part of. The America that Trump has created, don't you see, they'll draw these very. Uh, sweeping conclusions from the acts of one person when it's a uh, non-white, non-Christian shooter, uh, then all of a sudden it's well, hold on, it, this it's probably mental illness or or it's. It's about gun control or it's they, they pick some other issue other than ideology. It can't be ideology. And this we've seen, for example, in the aftermath of um, shootings perpetrated by those who thought they were part of or acting at the uh, acting as a result of the information they received or they picked up from the Black Lives Matter movement. We were told immediately that was not representative. And you can't talk about the atmosphere. You can't talk about tension and speech that could be inflammatory to the point of inciting violence unless it's right-wing white christian terrorism right which is a, a rare thing but occasionally they can construe some narrative where that is what we're dealing with you know they'll talk about a uh, someone who uh, shot an, an abortion doctor years ago or a bombing of an abortion clinic decades ago it, it happens but it is a, a rarity and as we all see it has become politicized, right? All of these shooting incidents are politicized right away. There's a rush to do this on social media. It's not just social media. It's, this isn't just individuals who are in their basements who are trying to maybe get a rise out of those that they disagree with politically. What we see is major politicians. The, the president of the United States in a previous administration, Barack Obama himself, would come out and speak in the immediate aftermath of, um, of a mass shooting on U.S. soil and 
depending on who the perpetrator was and depending on what the storylines were around that evil individual's uh, background. And then we get into, well, can we tell what the motive is? It's it's murky. You know, the, the, the mainstream press is still trying to figure out what the motive was for the Pulse nightclub shooting. They're not quite sure. They ran with some fake stories right afterwards. Could it could it be a belief in jihad? Could it be a strain of Islam that uh, that drives people to widespread indiscriminate violence against civilians in the name of a religious and political ideology and identity? Now, the media is not sure about that. They, they don't know if that's the real. Maybe it's that he was people were mean to him as a kid or they made fun of they made fun of his of the shooter of the Pulse nightclub's Muslim heritage in high school. You see all of the games that the media plays, and it's atrocious, and it's why when they then turn around and act like, how could you believe that we're not completely transparent and upfront about uh, what we see and how we report and and whether or not we have biases every time there's a shooting? If it's a if it's a left wing outlet, there's going to be someone somewhere, most likely, who makes it about guns or. Uh, they'll make it about mental health issues. They'll make it about any number of things. Uh, if, if it's a if it's a white, uh, even nominally Christian, or have if he had Christian parents and it's a white guy, he's going around shooting people. Well, then it's it's the Republican Party and and its rhetoric, and then then they'll go right to blaming Republicans. But if it's as we see here, an individual who is yelling Allahu Akbar and says he hates white people, let's wait till the facts come in. Well, we, we don't know enough yet to really understand motive or anything else here. So he told more things to the police, it should be noted. And uh, they will not tell us just yet what those were. I have a feeling they will not be, uh, they will not make the situation seem less horrific. And perhaps, as the media often does here, they justify their behavior. Or they justify the slow rolling of the facts after this by saying they want to cool things down. They want to cool down the passions around those who, you know, who, who who may act out badly in response to this, as though the American people are children. We can't be trusted with the truth. We, we, we really just like the facts to be reported by the media without it always being an opportunity for them to inflict their their own political prejudices on all of us. And then act like they're they're the aggrieved party. And we say, can you just tell us what happened here? Okay, there's a shooting guy yelled Allahu Akbar. He said he hates white people. Uh, we'll we'll figure out more in time. But you don't have to put this in any context for us. You don't have to run, as I'm sure the Huffington Post and others will tomorrow, oh, look at the rise in Islamophobia now because of this. Or let's pick out a few random social media accounts of idiots who are saying, oh, something nasty about Muslim people or something racist or whatever it may be. They don't have to do that for us. They don't have to pick that out and, and show us that this is what's the what the real issue is but i guarantee you you'll there'll be plenty of that plenty of that everything becomes immediately politicized and nothing can just be reported on as a terrible and tragic incident and allow us to come to our own conclusions about the threat level how this happened why this happened no no they want to they want to spoon feed us all of that tim in mississippi on wbuv welcome to the freedom hunt my friend what's up Hey, Bart, good afternoon. Listen, a couple of things. Uh, you know, the the fact that the panty waste in the media are going to play this California thing up as, as obviously Donald Trump's fault or, as you say, Chris, white Christian conservatives or, or whatever, uh, that I understand. In fact, that, that I expect. 
But I just heard, and I went back and replayed it to make sure I was right. Some spokesman for the FBI went out of his way to announce to the media that this is not being investigated as terrorism. We have sunk so low when uh, an agency of the federal government that should be above reproach and, and care nothing about the truth starts kowtowing to the, to the morons on the liberal left. Well, what, what'll be interesting as well to see, Tim, is they might not even, uh, it, it depends, but there's always this hesitancy because of the way that the left views uh, racism and hate uh, to prosecute this as a, as a hate crime. Uh, much slower. Anytime someone is is uh, running around saying, I'm going to kill people because they are white, uh, there are many on the left who would say that, that, that there's no such thing as an anti white hate crime. Um, and we'll see what happens here with the FBI in that case. I'm not even, for, uh, terrorism aside for a moment, maybe this guy was, uh, you know, I, I don't know enough of his background to say definitively, uh, based on what I know, that it, it, that it was terrorism. I don't know if he's somebody who's a, has longstanding, deep-seated, uh, you know, mental health issues. I don't know if this guy's a, a homicidal maniac, other than the fact that he ran around killing people, right? But I mean, I don't know if he has a mental health background that would come into play here, but it would seem obvious that you're talking about a, a, a hate crime, if there is such a thing as a hate crime, not being reported that way. It's not being reported as an apparent hate crime. He says he hates white people. He shot and killed three white people today. They're not going to report on it that way. So you, you see this all playing out. By the way, according to the, and thank you for calling in, Tim, according to the Associated Press's uh, style guideline, they should only translate the words of somebody from a story if it would be unfamiliar uh, unfamiliar to those reading it, and I don't think anybody's unfamiliar with what Allahu Akbar means. So I, I think we are quite aware, and they could always write it the way he said it, and then afterwards, uh, in parentheses, just tell us what the English translation is. But there's, of course, a sensitivity. This is I, I'm not imagining this. You go up to Canada, and they have open discussions about whether when there's a, a Syrian refugee who's going around sexually assaulting uh teenage girls should they should they tell anybody that he's a syrian refugee or should they just you know because they don't want to turn people against syrian refugees so they're just going to change the facts i mean this is this is open now this is out there everything turns into a uh, a debate and a discourse and a dialogue on the, the fairness of the facts instead of just whether they can present us with the facts as they are um this is still in the in the relatively uh, early stages here the fresno this Fresno uh, mass shooting, but it seems obvious to me that it's a it would would I don't I don't believe in hate crimes. I believe in crimes. You know, murder is murder, and you go down the because the moment you open up the door to hate crimes, and then you're playing the left's game with well, is this a protected group or not? And can you really say? Can you really know definitively what somebody's mindset is? And they also, of course, try to use hate crime legislation to make things that are otherwise not criminal into criminal activity so someone writes something or or i think even trump chalk uh drawings or people drawing or writing in chalk donald trump stuff at some campuses they're trying to say it was a hate crime i mean it's just insane welcome back to the freedom hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots buck sexton kicks it off I think we're going to have some breaking news for you all uh, during the show. It depends on what the 
what the results are. I know we'll see some early early uh, numbers coming from the polls. But for Georgia's 6th District, there is a special election underway. And, oh, my, everybody's got a lot of focus on this thing. There's a lot of a lot of uh, media attention on the uh, the sixth the sis, uh, sorry sixth district here, and John Ossoff, I think I'm saying his name right, who is uh, well, he's really the progressive dream candidate. He he looks like a guy who, if I walk past him in Brooklyn and then just decided to stop him on the street, saying I don't know. Red Hook or Bed-Stuy, uh, those of you who don't know New York probably don't know what I'm talking about, but he would, he would, talk to, he would discuss with me uh, his reclaimed garden and how he is growing his own beets and pickling them while also watching HBO, the show Girls. Um, you know, that's, he's a, he, he seems like the progressive kind of guy that the progressives are really going to get excited about. That's, I was trying to stretch there. I, don't, I haven't spent as much time around progressives recently as... As I used to, I suppose. I don't really know what's cool on the far left these days. Other than uh, wearing black from head to toe, breaking stuff and punching people, I don't really know what the progressive left is um, thinks is, is hip and cool. I got I got to catch up on some of that stuff. So back to Mr. Ossoff here. A few things about him. Uh, well, before we get into him, uh, this race is being held up as a possible national political shakeup. Oh, if if uh, if Ossoff wins, uh, then 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 clearly it shows that uh, Donald Trump has failed and he shouldn't be president anymore and he's terrible and he's the worst. And you go, "Hmm? Well, wait a second. I this is one one congressional seat and the more you read about it, the more you're like, "Okay, well, if he does win, it's a bit of a fluke. There are 18 candidates in this race." And the only, yeah, it's a solidly Republican district. It's only open because Representative Tom Price became Donald Trump's Secretary of Health and Human Services. But of the 18 uh, open, uh, or of the 18 options here, of the 18 candidates in the race, if one of them gets over 50% in the first go-round, then he wins, right? Otherwise, it goes into a runoff, and Ozoff is unlikely to win in a runoff based on what everybody sees here. So he really he has to win in this super crowded field. Now he's got to get to 50%, which is substantial when you got 18 candidates. But, of course, you look at it and you say, well, how many Democrats are in the district? I mean, if the, if the district is 30 or 40, you know, if, if the district is heavily Democratic or if they can, if they're, um, it depends on what the turnout is here. But I just, you'd figure that this wouldn't be a bellwether. This you can tie this to so many different things. You can tie it to terrorism, acts of violence. You can tie it to a congressional race. When is something an anomaly in the press's eyes? And when is it symptomatic of a much larger issue? Or when is it indicative of enormous change? Or when? And it's just based on what they like. Some guy, someone somewhere yells, Lockbar does something terrible. Well, that's there's nothing to see here. That's just bad things happen, but it's not connected to. I'm not speaking. By the way, I'm actually not speaking specifically about Fresno. I just mean in general. Whenever there's a terrorist attack, a jihadist attack somewhere, oh, well, you know, everyone. One of the great uh, intellectual, vapid intellectual statements that's out there right now. You'll hear it all the time. 
is, oh, well, everyone commits acts of violence. Well, some groups seem, you know, some groups based on ideology seem more prone to a certain kind of violence than others. You know, not a lot of Quakers blowing up airplanes these days, but I digress. Politically speaking, they do the same thing. Based on their preference, is this a, is this a huge referendum on Trump? Because Kansas was supposed to be, but oh, no, the Republican won. Oh, wah, 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 the Republican won. So I, I guess it's not a referendum on Trump after all. But, but I mean, for a little while, we, we were kind of told it was a Trump referendum. You'll, you'll recall that. Uh, th- th- that if he had lost, or rather if the Republican Party had lost in Kansas, it was all we needed to know about how ineffectual and just terrible the Trump administration already is. So this is the, the narrative the Democrats were running with. Now, part of this, by the way, because it's so flimsy, part of this comes from a very unsettling reality that the Democrats have that they don't have a whole lot these days. And we'll get into we'll get into DNC chairman uh, Perez and and the way he's been greeted by people on his own side of the political aisle. And, and what are they, they got Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren? I, I know that's where the. That's where the emotional core of the Democratic Party is now, social Demo- socialist Democrats. But that I still think would be problematic in a, in a general election. And I also think that in a lot of places uh, where you have so-called centrist Democrats uh, running or that would like to run, they don't want to be tied to, yeah, we're, we're socialists, but we're like the good kind of socialists. But that's what the Democrats offer up right now. And obviously they're out of power in the House, out of power in the Senate, out of power in the White House. State legislatures are a disaster for them. Governorships are a disaster for them. So they they need to get the base energized about something. And even the most dedicated, even the the most um, consistent New York Times reading, latte drinking, indoor scarf wearing leftist. Did, did that did that visual did that work? I'm trying here. Um, would get bored at some point, for a day or two at least, of hearing about how Trump is Trump is a fascist and Trump is going to destroy the world. It's not that they don't believe that, of course. It's just there's only so much of that you can have every day in a row before you want you want something to root for. Yeah, sure, rooting for Trump's failure is now a central tenet of the Democratic Party all across the board. And I know, like people, if I brought over one of my lefty media friends here, which I do have a few, they would say, oh, but look what they, they're rooting against Obama. I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. But I, I, I once it's like saying that, you know, all groups, all groups create violence. With politics, they'll say, well, you know, everybody's obstinate against the other side, the other party. Everybody in opposition wants to be obstructionist. Well, no, but there's degrees. There, there's levels. Um, and I, with the Democrat Party right now, I, I don't know what they even offer up as as an idea on anything, although I do think they may go along with Trump on infrastructure, but we'll see how that goes. Back to Georgia. I know I'm I'm bouncing around quite a lot here. They, they're picking Georgia now. They picked Kansas before as a a moment when they can all claim that the, that the tide is turning, that this is a a it's just one little election in for a congressman's seat. But it's a seismic shift in the opinions of the country. That's what they really want to give you here. And that's why now we'll get into the candidate a little bit. I mean, you've got Samuel L. Jackson himself of snakes on a plane, of uh, 
Pulp Fiction. I mean, I could, I'm going to be here for the rest of the show talking about the movies he's been in. I mean, uh, what's the one with the sharks? Deep Blue Sea, right? Deep Blue Sea. Um, I'm not even naming the best. I'm, I'm actually not being fair to his body of work. It's more, although people love Pulp Fiction, but those are not his best movies. Point being here, he's in a lot of movies. But he's voicing radio ads. They didn't ask Buck Sexton to voice any radio ads for the Republicans. Not that I would. Uh, but he's voicing radio ads for this Ossoff guy. Uh, here, I'll, I'll play one for you. Hi, I'm Samuel L. Jackson. There's a special congressional election on April 18th. What can you do? Go vote. Your vote goes a long way towards setting things right in this country. Vote for the Democratic Party. Stop Donald Trump, the man who encourages racial and religious discrimination and sexism. Remember what happened the last time people stayed home. We got stuck with Trump. We have to channel the great vengeance and furious anger we have for this administration into votes at the ballot box. Do your friends and family a favor. Hell, do yourself a favor and vote on April 18th and make sure to vote for the Democratic Party. Now, I, I, of course, I can, I can quibble with uh, with accusing Trump of sexism and, and racism, and but who, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna waste my breath on that. Of course, I think that's that's a low blow. It's on it's unfair. It's not true. But more to the point, you got Samuel L. Jackson. This is a local. This Samuel L. Jackson, as far as I know, I don't think he. I'm actually I don't know. I don't think he lives in Georgia though. I'm, I'm guessing he probably lives in L.A. somewhere. But uh, the, you know, this is some real star power for a congressional election. But it's the, a media frenzy around this because even if it's not a big deal, if the Democrat wins, they'll make it a big deal. That's why this is so important to them and they're they're preparing the, and by the way if, if the republican wins well then they say oh you know it was, a, it was a david and goliath story you know what are you expecting i mean come on it was you know it was 18 republicans Th- then it's all a big nothing burger but if the democrat wins then it's oh this is uh this is the the beginning of the end of the trump dynasty and you know i mean you could just see i could i could write the stories down what well, i should create a character where i get to be like liberal left-wing hack and just write and go on radio and just be like, oh, I'm just going to say the obvious things that all the other liberals are going to say before they say it because I know what they're going to say because it's obvious. Uh, but then you get into this Ossoff fellow described in The New Yorker as being very telegenic and smooth. Uh, but there's, there's some problems with him. Um, Mike, for example, his well, he's raised more than $8.3 million, which is a lot for a congressional seat, as I understand it. I have seen that it is, it is mostly, as the New York Times wrote here, mostly from out-of-state donors. I believe it might even be as high as 95% out-of-state donors. But then there was another little problem today, another little little whoopsie, little, mm, that's not so great. He was on CNN, which you can imagine. He's like, going on CNN. It's the, the TV equivalent of just showing up. You know, when you, when you run out onto the field and you're just getting high fives from everybody, when you're a Democrat like this guy running for a seat in a Republican-dominated uh, district that might allow the media to go all crazy with this narrative of how Trump is failing and look at this young Democrat and he's the future and he's going to – he'll single-handedly bring down the Trump empire. Uh, you're, you're just running through the, the, the tunnel getting high fives, right, at CNN. But there's a problem. You do have to answer questions at CNN or, or talk about stuff. And no matter what the softballs are, you may find yourself in a position where you have a little whoopsie because you said something that's not particularly helpful. And uh, here's how Mr. Ossoff did on CNN. 
will not be able to vote for yourself. Well, I grew up in this district. I grew up in this community. It's my home. My family is still there. I'm a mile and a half down the street to support Alicia while she finishes medical school. Um, it's something I've been very transparent about. In fact, I'm proud to be supporting her career. And as soon as she finishes her medical training, I'll be 10 minutes back up the road into the district where I grew up. It's a very reasoned and eloquent way of saying, uh, yeah, he doesn't even live in the district he's running in, everybody. He, he, all of his money comes from out of state, pretty much, almost all of it. Uh, he's got celebrities doing voice endorsements for him. And he doesn't even live in the district, cannot vote for himself, worked for Al Jazeera America. I, it wasn't like he was a, an anchor. I think he did some video or audio production work for them. I mean, like, media is tough. I would never go on air. I will tell you this, and this, this actually is more meaningful, I think, because I am a little... Uh, a, a, a young buck on the media scene. Uh, I, I refuse to do Russia Today, and I refuse to do Al Jazeera America, and they both would would have loved back in the day to have had on ex-CIA Buck Sexton, but nope, wouldn't do either one of them. And so I do pass judgment uh, on some who spend a lot of time over there. I'm like, what's, what's that all about? Uh, but anyway, I want to talk more about this Mr. Ossoff character and the way the media... Create, they really do create this story. I mean, it is manufactured. They are working overtime here to come up with ways to... By the way, they're, they're playing with house money. Now, it's kind of a d- double entendre there, House of Representatives playing with house money. I'm just saying. They're playing with house money here because if the Democrat wins, well, then it's a big upset and they get to talk about it for the, you know, the rest of the week. If the Democrat loses, oh, he's going to lose. I mean, it's no big deal. But uh, more on this, I, I have to uh, go to break... How a Georgia House race could rock the national political landscape. That's the big blaring headline on CNN right now. Uh, We will have at least uh, exit poll results, I believe, coming up here in just a few minutes. We'll have the the first round of data to share with you on whether this Mr. Ossoff becomes, uh, Mr. John Ossoff here becomes the, uh, well, if he doesn't win right away, meaning if he doesn't win this round with the 18 Republicans in the mix, very unlikely he's going to win. So he has to win uh, He has to win pre-runoff based on all the numbers that we've seen so far. I mean, maybe anything's possible, but very unlikely. But yeah, CNN saying that this could rock the national political landscape. It's just one congressional district, everybody. How, how could it be such a... Here's the way the New York Times is running on an early, writing on it earlier today. Um... Uh, The race thus far has been framed as a test of Mr. Trump's popularity among white suburbanites and of the gains the anti-Trump movement might be making among such voters. Um, First of all, you have to love the way they report all of a sudden in passive voice. The race thus far has been framed, you know, has been framed by... Well, you're framing the race that way right now with your reporting, right? But it's always, well, you know, there are others out there who are, uh, other people are saying, uh, this is one of the, one of the great and, and obvious and great, I mean, is in, it's annoying and, and constant uh, journalist tricks of when the anchor or the whomever it is, the TV journalist wants to uh, push an issue, wants to make a statement and says, some people say, you know, some people say, sir, that uh, you are abusive towards your spouse and are a terrible human being. What do you say about that? It's like, well, wait, are 
are you saying that or do some people say that? Not the same thing. And that's the this is one of the ways the media echo chamber does what it does is that they you know some some in media report that this political race could be a game changer, that what goes on here in Georgia may just completely uh, change things up and be a game changer for uh, for the whole Trump administration. Well, not not really. Right. I mean, that would seem to be a bit of a stretch. Uh but yeah, this is a classic. The, the media, there's also, of course, a, a real fondness for this guy because he is, I could just see him being the the, the dreamy dreamboat guy on some uh, leftist HBO series about, you know, yuppies who work for Al Jazeera or something. I don't know. He could be cast in that show, The the Newsroom, which I try to watch as somebody who's worked in a newsroom and Try to watch that show, the HBO show Newsroom. I thought it was so bad and so boring and so pretentious and so self-righteous. And it was really like a like a documentary of the inner workings of the DNC or something. It was it was useful in that respect, I think. Um, but uh, they also have a little they have a little uh, Bernie nostalgia. There was an analysis in the Times the other day where they said that that Ozov is like a Bernie Sanders type Democrat. The future. That was the quote they had there. That's amazing. Is it Bernie? Bernie's the future. If Bernie's your future as a political party, you yeah, you might want to you might want to think about that a little bit. You know, if, if you're waiting for Bernie for four or eight years from now, you're probably going to need. I don't know. They'd say Elizabeth Warren, but she's she is lacking. E- even if it is uh, false authenticity that Bernie Sanders exudes, he does exude it, and. Uh, Warren, I don't know. I don't know how anybody. I don't know how anybody takes her at well, takes her at her word, takes her particularly seriously. I don't. I don't get it. It seems like it's all uh, theater to me. But you know, then again, I'm a right wing conservative male, part of the patriarchy. I'm just constantly microaggressing and inflicting my cisgender cisgender hegemony uh, on things. So. Yeah, there's that. Uh, We've got Kevin Williamson joining in a few. Be right back. He spreads freedom. Because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. Welcome back, Team Buck. I think we'll have some updates on the uh, 6th District Congressional race. Mr. Ossoff against a whole bunch of Republicans and a couple other Democrats in the race as well with him who are not getting nearly as much attention um, but if we have any updates, we'll give those to you as soon as they hit the as they uh, hit the screens here. And in the meantime, we've got our friend Kevin Williamson on the line. He is National Review's roving correspondent and director of the National Review's Institute, uh, National Review Institute's William F. Buckley Jr. Fellowship Program in Political Journalism. Kevin, thank you for coming on. Hey, what's up? Uh, no, a bunch of things. What do you think about this uh, sixth district congressional race here? This is my, my understanding from reading from reading the CNN and some others is that uh, if this Ossoff guy wins, that Trump should basically just resign. Yeah, they are certainly uh, hoping for that. Although we would have got the same thing in Kansas if the uh, Democrats had had one there. I don't know. You know, it's a funny district. Uh, suburban districts uh, they tend to grow slightly more liberal over time. Uh, you saw the same thing in the ones surrounding Philadelphia over the years where in the 70s and early 80s, they were just basically 100% Republican. They used to joke in Lower Marion that 
if you weren't registered as Republican, you couldn't get your garbage picked up and that sort of thing. And then they, they changed over time and other bits for Democratic. So you may see some of that. Um, you'll see some reaction voting to people who don't like Trump who are alienated by him in various kinds of ways. Uh, you'll see just some counter-cyclical voting of people who you know just tend to vote against whoever's, whichever party is in the, in the presidency. So who knows? I mean, it's kind of a funny race where you've got, I guess, it's four Democrats and 11 Republicans, and then it's a couple of other people and a runoff requirement if no one gets 50 percent plus one. So we'll see what the race really looks like, I think, if it goes into a runoff where you've got really the one Democrat and presumably one Republican in the race at that point. But, yeah, they're, they're certainly hanging a lot on this. You know, you've got all these out-of-state people coming in, and a bunch of people got apparently turned away from the polls today because they didn't live in the district. But I think it's really unfair because Ossoff doesn't live in the district either, so why should the voters have to live there? That seems really a double standard. Uh, you know, they've got the DNC chairman uh... – Tom Perez going all over the country now. I think it's a 50-state tour, right? That he's going around to every state to try to get the Democrats energized, and he's been he's been met with some. Do, do we have some of the uh, of the Perez? Uh, uh, yeah, we, let's. We have Perez. He was he was jeered. He was booed on on stage at he one of these. Driven off stage, I believe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Hold, play it for a second. Go ahead. Directing that people buy American and hire American. Well. Maybe you could start with your own businesses. The, the, the wall that he wants to build is going to have to have a garage door because all the products he makes in Mexico are going to have to drive through it. You know that? Well, no, that's not and him getting booed. That's him getting cheered. Do we have him I getting booed? He got booed. Okay, well, sorry. Order, <laughs> this is just him trashing Trump. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> false false alarm or false advertising there. I thought we had some audio of Perez getting booed somewhere because he, he brought up Bernie Sanders. I want to ask you, Kevin, what, what, is the, what are the Democrats doing right now? I mean, what does Perez go around? Like, other than Trump is, is Hitler, which they've kind of backed off to just Trump is a fascist now. Uh, but what, are they, what are they offering people? What are they telling them? Well, you know, the same old stuff that, um, you know, Republicans want to take away your Social Security and take away your grandma's Medicare and all that. I mean, look, I mean, he should be on a 50-state tour, right? That's kind of his job. And in about, you know, 36 of the states, by my account, they've been getting the crap kicked out of them. If you look at the state legislatures and the governorships and, and all the rest of that stuff, you know, if we uh, repealed the amendment for the direct election of senators, we'd have something like 80 or 70 Republican senators right now. Uh, maybe more than that. So, um, yeah, they've got some building to do. The Democrats have been funny for the last eight years because they were so invested in the presidency, partly because they had it and partly because Obama was to them a, a kind of uniquely attractive and charismatic figure. And, and I get that. And they kind of let everything else burn to the ground. You know, they were getting killed in the states and the governor's races and the legislatures and the House. Um, they're not doing that well in the Senate, or they hadn't been smacked around in the Senate quite so hard. And they didn't really notice it or pay that much attention to it because they had the White House. And they figured, well, we've got the White House, and then we've kind of got the media in the court, so that's really everything we need to get our agenda through. And they're starting to figure out that it's not. You know, what's funny is the Democrats have suddenly discovered gerrymandering. Uh, you know, for, for 50, 60, 100 years, gerrymandering was kind of their business because they controlled most of the state legislatures. And that was just kind of the way it worked. And now they suddenly started to figure out that they're not doing that well in the states and that these things are going to have uh, consequences for them at the national level as well, where they really care about things. I mean, they don't really care how many House seats they have in Texas or anything like that. They care about you know, having the White House and having a majority in Congress and, and that sort of thing. And I think they're starting to maybe figure out that Obama was really bad for them as a party. Uh, he, was, he was good for himself. He was good at getting done 
what he wanted to get done, which was giving a bunch of speeches and making himself a kind of beloved public intellectual with a minor sideline in, in political policy and in public policy. But in terms of building an organization, uh, they're a little gutted out. And that's got to be weird for them because for so long, that's what they were good at. They were the political machine. You know, they had all of that stuff sort of rolling on rails, and uh, now they don't. So they've got to be a little bit um, at loose ends. It would it would seem that way. And and is is Bernie Sandersism, which I don't know if that's a thing, but we can pretend it's a thing. Is is this is Sanders the standard? Sorry, what's that? Just wrong. Pardon me. Is Sanders the standard uh, that they can rally behind? It's that's that's what the Democratic base seems to get fired up about. Yeah, you know, I think if your your national standard bearer is going to be a grumpy muppet from Vermont, you're going to probably not go too far. I mean, they've been down this road before. You know, they went way to the left in the 60s and 70s, and it took Bill Clinton to come in and sort of reform them and say, look, we can't really be anti-capitalism. We can't really be anti-free market. We need to be a party that's socially liberal, uh, that's relatively friendly to the welfare state, but also in favor of reforms and responsible administration and a party that's about things like free trade and economic development both at home and abroad because it's what's good for the world. And while that's not a message I entirely agree with and not a messenger I certainly would have liked very much that worked for them in the 90s. And it worked because it took them in a place that was, in terms of real policies and real outcomes, better where they had been. Uh, The Democratic Party of 1968 and Democratic Party of 1974 was just not an organization that was going to be prepared to win at that level and certainly not prepared to actually govern the country at that level. And if they're going to be running back in the opposite direction, I think you're going to really uh, be in trouble in a lot of ways. I mean, Hillary Clinton, as much as I detest her and I detest the the Clintons and that whole uh, weird little cult, is if you look at her actual policies, just a much more responsible uh, political vision than Bernie Sanders, as wrong as she is about some things, as, as bad as she is about some things. Yeah, because we, we see these polls, Kevin, about how you know single payer now is. Oh, there's a, there's a surge towards single payer, and uh, that uh, no one ever discusses what that would look like. But they just we're being told that now single payer is popular again. By the way, I, I don't I don't want to sound like one of those guys who says I don't I don't believe the polls. But with single right. payer, I actually don't believe the polls. Meaning that they're yeah, I mean, you know I want to see more than one maybe. But the thing is, most people don't really understand what that means. Like I'll talk to people about it, and they'll bring up single payer, and then they'll start talking about Western Europe. Uh, which mostly doesn't have single-payer. What Western Europe mostly has is private insurance with pretty generous subsidies. They have some version of what we try to do with the Affordable Care Act. The number of countries that actually have single-payer public health systems, like the British Health Service and the version of that in Canada, is is actually really pretty small. Uh, Most European countries don't have. Most of the European welfare states and the Scandinavian countries don't really have that. What they have is a system that's a bit like uh, what we've been looking at doing here on, on, on both sides of the aisle, although there's obviously some variation in the level of regulation and level of subsidies and all that. Most people, I don't think, really want a monopoly government health service. They don't want to put everybody on Medicaid. or just don't think anybody really thinks that's a very good idea. What people talk about, and I think what they really want, is we want more generous subsidies. We want something that looks more like a Western and Northern European welfare state. And that very well may command a majority. That may very, very well be popular. It shouldn't be popular for lots of reasons, but I can see why it would be. I mean, for the same reason that Social Security yeah. is very popular. Did you think the, the misstep with Republicans and the, the repeal and replace that, that mm-hmm. didn't happen, was that more because Republicans are incompetent or they are just the people that we shout at for reflecting back to us the political reality 
that while everyone says they want to live in a in a, a, a libertarian, free market, healthcare paradise, they actually want yeah. other people to pay for their stuff. They they, they really they, that that is a, a that is popular. People do want subsidies and price controls and government intervention when they think it's yeah. good for them when it comes to health care. I mean, who, who, who gets well, more of the blame? Are, and to be brief about it, the problem is that the Republicans are fools. I mean, they're just absolute fools, both on the policy and the politics. You know, when Obamacare was being debated, you had every governor and every Republican want to be president in the country going out in front of the cameras and saying, well, we've got the best health care system in the world, and that's that. Well, yeah, it's a pretty good system, but people were unhappy with certain aspects of it. And one, some of those things that you have a right to be unhappy about, which is the unpredictability of it, the uh, insecurity that people have. So if you go to the hospital, you know, you don't know if your insurance is actually going to cover this stuff. You're in for, you may be going to get a bill for $1,000, maybe you need a bill for $30,000, maybe you need a bill for $300,000. Who knows? I mean, it's an absurd system. It doesn't work very well. There's no transparency in prices. So people were unhappy about a lot of things. And rather than address that, Republicans just said, well, we've got the best health care system in the world. And then they had eight years to figure out how to put together something that would satisfy both libertarians, the right, the business people, and the moderates. And it would be popular enough to get through Congress and not cost them Congress the next time around. They had eight years to figure that out and to come up with a political strategy for getting it done. And now maybe Paul Ryan is right that you have to do a piece through reconciliation and a piece through administrative reform and a piece through statute. But you needed to come up with a way to make sure that people understood that, understood what the package looked like and how it was going to unfold. Instead, they just sort of show up and say, hey, here's a bill, and nobody likes it. And boom, you know, it's down in flames. And, well, gosh, I guess we'll come back in a couple of months and try that again. I mean, come on, guys. You had nearly a decade to get ready for this. And if you've been smart about it, you had 20 years to think of something. But they didn't. They did not. Kevin Williamson is National Review's roving correspondent. Check out his latest on nationalreview.com. Kevin, uh, thanks so much for making the time. Good to have you, sir. Always a pleasure. Talk to you soon. Uh, team phone lines open, 844 900 uh, Also go to com. We will be posting uh, updates on the Ossoff. Well, we shouldn't just say the Ossoff race because he might not even do that well. But this guy who might win is a Democrat in Georgia, 18 other candidates or 18 candidates, whatever. A lot of people, big political clown car worth of candidates, people coming out all over the place. Uh, we'll give you updates there. BuckSexton.com, your uh, one-stop shop for all things Freedom Hut. So there was this uh, horrific murder that was live-streamed on, on Facebook. And uh, Facebook CEO, uh, this is, by the, it should be noted, this is, this is something that happens now. It's happened in a number of cases. In fact, there was a I believe it was in in France where a a jihadist uh, terror murder uh, was also live streamed. So this is just the technology makes this it makes this easy now when people want to do this. Um, I remember also that terrible video of the uh, what was it the news reporter who videotaped him shooting some of his, uh, his some of his colleagues. So everyone has cameras and everyone has uplinks to the internet that they carry with them at all times. And Facebook CEO Mark uh, Zuckerberg spoke about this issue uh, earlier today. Our hearts go out to the family and friends of Robert Godwin Sr. And uh, we have a lot of work, and we will keep doing all we can uh, to prevent tragedies like this from happening. I I don't think there is anything Facebook can do. Uh, I, I don't understand even 
why there is this immediate rush to, well, well, Facebook needs to find a way to stop this from being live streamed. Maybe they can take it down faster or they could work on some process points here. But the murder is is the aspect of this that we just wish didn't exist in society, but of course it does. Uh, the technology to broadcast it and live stream, we, we can't get rid of that. Uh, there's there's really not much that Facebook can do. But it does r- remind me that there are all of these efforts underway um, to find justifications for these enormously powerful social media platforms that are doing, with with each passing day, their market share and their ability to shape the narrative of uh, of public perception, I mean, to to really move the needle on any number of issues, um, their their ability to do this is really unprecedented. And, uh, well, it is unprecedented because the technology has never existed before, but just the, the power that they have is tremendous. And You'll notice that there have been more and more of these outcries over time for Zuckerberg or uh, I think it was Dorsey at Twitter, but there are some others. Uh, I'm not sure if he was a CEO recently or not, but these digital media barons to take an active role in in uh, stopping content from getting out there. Look, in the case of live streaming a murder, I, I wish there was a way they could stop this from getting out there, but realistically, there's not. I mean, maybe they can pull it down quickly, but if it's showing you video in real time, there's not, and there's nothing that Facebook can do. But this, uh, I am warning against this reaction, this impulse that so many have now, media and just the public in general, that whenever something bad happens involving social media, which plays a larger and larger role in our lives. Uh, we expect the Zuckerbergs of the world, or we call for the Zuckerbergs of the world to do something. And w- we give a lot of credit and uh, we give a lot of power to these in, these social media platforms. And I am trying to disabuse uh, anyone who will listen of this notion that they are non-political actors, that they do not have agendas, that they are essentially operated like a public utility. Facebook is not the electric company. You know, Facebook is not uh, is not a blank slate for that everyone competes on equally and there's no it is a it is a a corporation, right? It is it is owned by people it is trying to make a profit and it also has the ability to make decisions and distinctions about what is shared, who gets shared, what information is out there and what is suppressed, and that they have this uh, this response that often comes up of, well, it's it's all based on the algorithm. You should be, and this is going to turn right into our, or this will transition into our discussion about taxes, which is coming up here in a second, everybody. I still, I'm amazed where it's not more, not more talk about taxes, but we'll get there in a minute. I, I'm, I am flabbergasted by that one. Uh, I am befuddled. Um, on, on how there's not more outrage over taxes at this t- on this day. Um, but back to social media for a second here. Uh, the hiding in complexity is something that should always get your, that should always perk up your ears. You should always be concerned. When someone says to you, well, I, I could explain how it is that we pick what news stories get shared and what news stories don't, but it's very, it's just very technical. It's very complicated. 
and, and it's it's something that just happens. It, it's not an active. There's no uh, siding with one group or another. There's there's no political hand in any of this. It just happens based on the algorithm. Well, then you look at how they make their money, and of course, it's through search and through, well, depending on whether they're talking about Google or Facebook, and it's through ads and, and selling of information. They have all of this data on all of us. We trust them with it. Um, and they've worked very hard as well to cultivate this image of, you know, what is it? Google was don't be evil. I think that's a concerning slogan for a company to have. Don't be evil. You know, you're, you're not worried about a company that's trying to sell you a dozen muffins in a box about whether or not they're evil. Why? Well, Google, of course, is a lot more powerful than your local bakery. I understand that. But you you wouldn't think they would have to tell you that they're not they're not going to be evil. I, I'm not being a conspiracy theorist about this. I, I just think that there's not enough attention paid or there, there's not enough of a willingness to grapple with the fact that we what the old media used to be able to do, which is to dominate the conversation. The mainstream media now has competition. It didn't have competition for decades, really, at least on TV and with the major newspapers. And um, that power is transitioning into the hands of social media now, meaning they get to set the they get to set the set the terms of debate. They get to set up the conversation that everyone else becomes a participant in the game that they've for which they have set the rules everyone else just gets to show up and act on uh, whatever it is that's put in front of them by these social media entities so in short there's nothing that i can see or think of that facebook can do or should do uh, realistically about violence that will be live streamed this is not the first time it is also not the last time this will happen Um, but i do caution all of us from thinking that the social media companies are going to come up with uh, come up with ways to fix these societal ills and problems and violence and the other issues that come up. Uh, the more power, the, the, the more you trust them, in a sense, the more power these companies have. And I think they already have far too much. We're also working with Congress on tax reform and simplification, and we're on time if we get that health care approval. So press every one of your congressmen, press everybody, because we want to get that approval. And it just makes the tax reform easier, and it makes it better, and it's going to make it steeper. It's going to be bigger, and that's what we want to do. So we're in very good shape on tax reform. We have the concept of the plan. We're going to be announcing it very soon. But health care, we have to get the health care taken care of. And as soon as health care takes care of, we we are going to march very quickly. You're going to watch. We're going to surprise you. Right, Steve Mnuchin? Right? Secretary of Treasury. I certainly hope so. Can't say that I know one way or the other if that's going to happen. I, I've also seen in the last day or two that the administration thinks that August would be fast for any real action on taxes. Our taxes were, well, filing taxes, I should say, were, were, it was due today. Today is tax day, everybody. And I would think this is, for anyone who believes in limited government, constitutionalism, uh, I, you know, go, to, go down the line, liberty, <laughs> rule of law, th- this should be the angriest day of the year for us. 
you know, there are a lot of people that will point to conservative media, right wing media, whatever, and they will say, oh, it's there. There's so much. It's just all outrage. Of course, on the left, it's outrage here. Right? Outrage generates attention. Attention is ratings. Ratings is money. And this is how this is how people uh, do this business of media. Uh, but I'm legitimately angry about taxes today. Uh, this is not like, oh, you know, it's time to uh, talk to everybody about how, you know, I, I just all everything I, I own has has an American or has a has an eagle on it, a you know, bald eagle. And uh, I sleep on a bed of the Constitution and I wake up and I just wrap myself in the flag. And this is not posturing. We should be angry with our government based on what happens today or what's what's been happening all year but the american people are pretty pretty tame on this pretty docile you look back at uh the the founding of this country and the revolution they were upset about taxes in in large part i know not entirely there's a lot of things you can go through go through the declaration very clearly stated what the Grievances were from quartering soldiers in our homes to a lack of representation to appointment of judges that weren't rep- that weren't uh, responsive to pe- people. And you can go on the whole list in the Declaration. But taxes is one of them. <laughs> so start start with that. And it's where we get um, uh, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, it said in the Declaration. Uh, and taxation without representation, of course, became a rallying cry. And we all remember from history class, right? The uh, what? The the Sugar Act, the Stamp Act, the Tea Act, the Boston Tea Party, because of the Tea Act. And these were all taxes that were put on us by the Brits. Well, by our founding fathers, not by us. But taxation was enough to get the the founders and uh, to get the earliest Americans riled up at what was their government, the British, uh, British crown, and here we are. It's tax day, and I'm seeing a lot of talk about everything other than this. And I don't, I just don't understand. I can't imagine how this isn't a strategic uh, misstep, or at least a missed opportunity for the Trump administration. They should have been pushing this for months, saying, oh, we'll do health care first and then taxes. Well, at least sell us on what the tax plan is going to be, assuming health care gets through as you think it will. And I should note, I'm I don't uh, I don't subscribe to this philosophy of, well, it's going to be really fixing the tax code. is going to be really complicated. It doesn't have to be. It shouldn't be, in fact. And, And complexity when it comes to our tax code is a is a huge part of the problem but you know like uh like well-behaved livestock we the american people we file our taxes and we we scurry to send in our information to the irs and we hope that the same bureaucrats whose salaries we pay don't don't decide for whatever reason uh by the way being a conservative in media as i understand it that's that's that can be a reason but we hope the IRS bureaucrats don't decide to come after us. It doesn't have to be this way. Um, there are all these issues that we get fired up about on uh, on the right, conservatives, Americans in general, but particularly conservatives. Uh, we get fired up about the tyranny of activist judges and Obamacare and the Democrat media apparatus 
And I get it. I, I agree on all of that. But what about taxes? Where, where, where is the outrage? I feel like this is a, a rare moment where I can say there should be much more than there is. Usually there are people that are feigning outrage over some issue. But on this, I want to know why aren't people more upset about it? I feel like we have forgotten so much so quickly the, the, from the founding to today. You know, the, there wasn't even an income tax for uh, the first, uh, well, gosh, I'm doing math in my head now. What is it? Till, till the big early stage of the 20th century, uh, we didn't even have an income tax. Now we're told the income tax is absolutely essential. If we didn't have an income tax, the government would fall apart. You have mass hysteria, dogs and cats living together. Ghostbusters reference. Uh, we have been promised tax reform, and and we've gotten used to. And by the way, this is what really, what really bothers me about a lot of this. We're being conditioned constantly, right? We're conditioned to think that oh, we're going to get a tax cut, and we should be grateful for that. Why am I, Why should I be grateful to the government for taking less of my money? We are conditioned through automatic withholding. You know, for those of us who work for an employer who does that, they take money out of your paycheck for you. And yeah, this is more this is convenient for us. Right. So we think, oh, well, well, uh, you know, this is great. This is so helpful. I don't have to write a check every month or at all in Medicaid. In fact, part of the government's conditioning of all of us into being a bunch of taxpaying sheep bah, is that at the end of the year, we get a refund in many cases. I don't know. Maybe you do. Maybe you don't. I, I feel like I always end up sending them a check. But you get a refund. And and I understand why this mentality is there. But you get a refund and you think to yourself, oh, this is great. You know, now I can pay down my credit card. Or I, you know, I've got a little extra money for the car repair. Whatever it may be. Oh, I get a refund. It's like it's it's like the, the government's so generous. Uh, they're just giving you back a little bit of what they have been taking from you all year. The whole system is rotten. The whole tax code we have, 70,000 pages. It is a giant monument to corruption and special interests and uh, political favors and social engineering. And whenever someone comes along and says, you know, why does it have to be this way? It shouldn't be this way. Like, oh, well, you're going to give up the, the mortgage interest deduction and oh, you're going to give up a charitable deduction. And it's it's a version of what we saw with Obamacare. All we ever talked about in the beginning of Obamacare or we were allowed to talk about was pre-existing conditions, staying with your parents insurance until you're 26. What about the government mandates about acceptable level of care and the loss of plans and the massive intrusions into the market and the and the redistribution of wealth under the guise of health care? Excuse me, excuse me. Pre-existing conditions, stay in your parents' church for 26. Do you or do you not like that, sir? That's all we're allowed to talk about. Whenever you begin to get into a discussion about the tax code, it's always, oh, look at the deductions you'll lose. Deductions are just a way of evading the strangulation of the federal government around our finances all the time, a little bit. Just, just, it helps you a little bit here and there. You're already, you're going to be paying them all kinds of money. Uh, but the, the whole premise is flawed. People say, oh, we have, a pro we have progressive taxation. Uh, why, don't, why are we taxed on income instead of on wealth? Oh, that would, by the way, you would see such a change, such a switch. 
with so many of these uh, private jet progressives, these limousine liberals, who will even state it's it's a form of, of bragging, of course. You know, oh, I, I wish I wish I had to pay more taxes. Which, whenever they say that, you can give as much money to the federal government as you want. You can you can add it in. It's on your forms. It's in. You can give Uncle Sam as much of your cash as you feel like. They'll take it. Uh, but of course, th- if it weren't based on income, which once you get b- beyond a certain amount, uh, once you have wealth at a certain level, I- income isn't doesn't really matter anymore. Your expenses are covered. You're getting money uh, th- without having to work for money, right? You're you're part of the asset holding class, and you also have uh, preferred tax rates for those in the asset holding class, uh, whether we're talking about long-term capital gains or just your ability to live off of investments in uni bonds or whatever it may be. So there is so much nonsense that goes in this tax code and the add into it. So, so it's not fair. Let's start with that. There, there, I could, why, why isn't anyone else angry about this? I'm, I'm looking at all the news broadcasts, news sites, eh, it's tax filing day. Why is this okay? The way the system works right now, all of us live in live in the constant anxiety. I know some of you are thinking, "Oh, Buck, I'm I'm very you know my taxes are very uh, you know I'm I'm on the straight and narrow with my taxes, never have a problem." If they, they can audit you and keep looking through year after year of your returns and put you through hell, even if you didn't do anything wrong. And you don't get a you don't get even as much as a high five and a nice job at the end of that. You just have lots of lost night's sleep, maybe the expense of having to hire an accountant or even a lawyer to defend yourself. Yeah, the IRS is a rapacious federal agency with tremendous powers. This is why I think it's so funny with the Trump tax return issue. Oh, once we see this, then we'll know that Putin was. Oh, yeah, because there's, there's, a, there's a line item in Trump's taxes that says, you know, Putin payoff to betray my country. It's just so stupid. But it's the tax code is not fair. The IRS is an agency that is given far too much power and leeway. And as we saw with the health, uh, the health care debate at the beginning of this year, part of the problem here is that everyone, everyone wants to keep their stuff, particularly those members of Congress who pay lip service to wanting to change the tax code, they realize that this is one of their most important areas of influence. That if you want to do a favor for a special interest, the best way to do it is to bury it in the 70,000-page tax code somewhere. If you want to be seen as either, well, if you're on the left, of course, it's raise taxes and give more to the Give more to the state, to the needy, to the whatever, you know, to to illegal immigrant programs. And if you're on the right, we have this. Oh, well, we'll give you. We're going to give you a tax a tax cut. You know, it'd be a little bit here. Well, tax cut always feels pretty temporary, doesn't it? Complexity is a problem in and of itself. It's seventy thousand pages. It doesn't have to be that big. It's that big because of all the things I'm telling you. And we know this. You don't have to be a CPA. You don't have to be even good at math. I'm not good at math. I'm not terrible, but I'm not good. Uh, You don't have to have any of that. Um, And yet here we are. Trump is promising that there'll be action on this issue. I certainly hope that is the case. But he's not saying there'll be a a flat tax. There will be a, a, a major cut for corporations. I think that could provide a real boost to the economy. 
the corporate tax rate is too high, but the individual tax rate is too high. But the moment you switch from it being income tax to wealth tax, so all of your assets above a certain level would be subject to assessment and overall taxation. This doesn't. This isn't really that crazy, as, at least from a functional perspective. You think about how they do it in a lot of municipalities. The state gets to tell you what your house is worth, or the you know your your city or your jurisdiction, your county. Your county gets to tell you what your house is worth, and then you have to pay based on what they say your house is worth. You rent even if you now we're talking about real estate taxes. I know, but there's just too much taxes on everything. You rent your house from the government even if you own it. You're paying property taxes year in, year out. Even if you have no mortgage at all, you can't just sit at home and be like, well, I own this and this is mine. No, you got to send you got to send Uncle Sam a check every year for well, not Uncle Sam. You got to send your county, your state a check every year for that. But same idea. Taxes are everywhere We're we are overtaxed. It is too much. It is wrong. It is unjust. And here we have Republicans in charge of the House, the Senate and the White House. And I, I've I had some of you, uh, you know, give me a little little bit of a. A little bit of pushback on this, and I, I understand, I agree. Too early to say Trump has not delivered on anything, really. We don't know. He could deliver on everything still, and I hope he does, and I am counting on him to. The healthcare first few weeks that wasn't great, but maybe they get all this done. But if Repub- if they can't do this now, they'll, ne- they'll never do it. If Republicans aren't serious about dealing with the tax code in the next 12 months or 18 months or whatever the timeline is they need to do all then it's just all a scam then it's a joke then we we really do have a two-party system that might as well be a one-party system because they're both just representatives of interests that keep them elected and not of the american people and it is an abomination it really is i i think it we should be furious and i I, people look at me like why are you furious about tax day we should all have to write a check. And by the way, 35% of filers don't even pay anything, which is another... I, I could go on about this all day. All day! I'll try not to, because I know some of you are going to be like, all right, Buck, enough on the taxes. But uh, seriously. All right, I, I know, I know they're playing the music. They're like, Buck, stop with your getting all crazy, uh, you know, anarchist stuff over here. Look, I always tell you that anybody can make a mistake when they're speaking extemporaneously on TV, uh, it can, or you know, on radio. It, it happens, right? And I try to be uh, reasonable about my expectations, or we should all be reasonable about a good faith error or a stumble that anyone could make, or even just a, a, a dumb error that anyone could make. And then there's like, wow, that's dumb. That's something else. That is, woo, in a class by itself and i i was hit by this uh last night i was uh, just going through uh, the news and looking for issues to address with you here today on the show and there's this british uh, aspiring politician named james cracknell who was on a tv show and said the following 20 20- if you think of the two countries in the world that have got a handle on obesity, what do you think they are? Which two countries? Uh, do you know what? Well, I'm stumped there. I don't know. North Korea and Cuba. Right. See, they're quite controlling <laughs> on behavioural yeah. change. So, yeah, there is, a, there is a place. It will have to be worked, and you have to get people to buy into it. And, and the reality is that, 
Yeah, but people are starving in North Korea, aren't they? They're not, they're, you know, they're not obese because they haven't got any food. They're obese because, well, they're bit, no, exactly, but there are sanctions and everything else. But it's, well, um, the example is it's behavioural change. Well, it's like, you know, it's like, it's like I mean, yeah, I've, I just said, like, the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. And, like, it's crazy that I would, you know, um, are we on, is this on? Are we on television? Is that a telly? Is it working? Did people just hear me say something so incredibly stupid and disrespectful i won't be a politician i i, I think maybe i should not have said anyway <laughs> i was just like wow yeah north korea's tackled obesity that's that's uh i don't even know how and he but it should be no it's not like he said it and then he corrected himself it's not like he said, you know, i said something really damn oh i shouldn't i shouldn't have said that that was really it was really stupid he had to have the other British nuns go like, but, but sir, I think that's, um, I think you might, you you might in fact be a, a complete moron. I, I think that's possible. Um, so yeah, that guy, British politician, but some of ours aren't much better, as you know. He's an ex-CIA officer who knows how to outsmart the enemies of liberty. What I do have a very particular set of skills. Buck Sexton with America Now. Team, your mission, should you choose to accept it, call the Freedom Hunt Operations Center, 888-900-BUCK. Make contact. Unless you're under hostile surveillance, 888-900-2825. We will continue to update you, team, with everything that we can see about the uh, 6th uh, Congressional District in Georgia, which is getting a lot of attention right now. As I said to you and, and Kevin Williamson from National Review, uh, Seem to agree with me. Um, this is not that big of a deal either way, except it's been made a big deal by uh, media outlets that will run with an, they'll run with a very happy for them narrative if the Democrat wins, and if he doesn't, well, it's you know just another congressional race. But we'll keep an eye on it because it's an interesting story, although I don't think one of tremendous impact. If we're going to think about an issue that does have a lot of impact, I wanted to switch gears for a few minutes here and talk about, well, it's a, a wide range of issues, but a Bloomberg piece by uh, Gina Smialik uh, is, Young White America is Haunted by a Crisis of Despair. That's the piece. Uh, America, and the, the sub-quote here is, uh, the subheading is, America is not a great place for people with only a high school degree, and I don't think it's going to get better anytime soon. This is a theme that we saw throughout the primary with Donald Trump and his supporters. And why did they believe in Trump? Why do they support Trump? Uh, where did this surge of uh, of interest in politics from areas of the country that had been, from the perspective at least of those living there, written off by the federal government, forgotten by the media, not a part of the national conversation, not treated as though they are uh, they are worth anyone's interest or time. And in many cases, although not entirely, they are predominantly uh, white uh, counties, uh, rural areas, and places where there's been a deindustrialization or there's been a moving away of jobs. Uh, th- there have been a lot of profiles of this, and that's part of it. And there's also 
the opioid epidemic and the rise in alcohol, uh, alcohol, alcohol deaths um, and the rise in uh, the use of street heroin and just the also surge in prescription drug abuse, mostly for, for painkillers, though not entirely. And the, this is a this is a crisis you know, to borrow from this Bloomberg article. This is a a problem and a, and a concern that we can uh, we cannot ignore. And I, I try to think of how we got here. And there uh, there's of course social science research on this. They look into what happens if you live in this country right now and you're a a young white male. I, I, I am technically, I think, a millennial because the way that at least it's defined in this piece is that you're born after 1980. I was born in 1981. So I am technically a millennial, though I like to refer to myself as a gray beard millennial because I am wise like Gandalf among Gandalf the wizard among the millennials. Uh, and Looking at this, at my peer group, though, and the challenges that we face uh, and trying to extrapolate out from that, what are some of the policy implications for national debt, for economic competitiveness, for uh, social cohesion in this country, any any number of issues? And there is real reason for uh, concern, this anxiety uh, that many people, many particularly young people, although it, it extends well beyond the uh, the 20 to 34, 20 to 35 age range that is cited in this piece. I think 25 to 34 is the statistic they cite uh, most often to show that there's been a surge in drug overdoses. And there's and it's by the way, the, the numbers are staggering. We talked about the opioid epidemic on this show some weeks ago, an interview that I will never forget. It's one of those interviews that really stuck uh, stuck out for me as I thought I was reasonably well informed about the opioid epidemic. I did not know how uh, out of hand it had really gotten and also what the full implications were for those who were caught up in it until we had on that, that expert to talk about the potency of the drugs, the availability of the drugs. But it's rare for any social scientist, it's rare in this country to find a demographic that is declining in terms of life expectancy, declining in terms of earning potential, declining in terms of general well-being and every means that we have at our disposal of trying to uh, measure that. And so we look at this, and I think it's a... It, this is an ongoing conversation. I, I do not have uh, the uh, the answers here. I do not have any way of saying... Um, that this is something that can be dealt with in, in a simple or straightforward fashion. This is, there's a lot going on here. On the one hand, I, I think that and this is an, a simplistic but real analysis of it. I think that the the way that social media has become so pervasive in our day-to-day lives uh, allows for a lot of us to see false and glorified projections of the lives of so many around us. Media used to be something that you were exposed to in the morning when you read the paper, maybe, on your way to work. And this is true of our parents' generation. And at night when you came home, you'd turn on the TV. Now you carry a TV in your pocket with endless channels and YouTube and and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and all. And it's not just the, the media narratives that you're exposed to that show us these Oh, this 30-year-old 
billionaire. Um, this guy who just sold his company for a hundred million dollars. You know, he's only he's only twenty five or whatever it may be. They don't run stories on how for every person that starts a company in their garage, like the Google guys, that becomes worth uh, untold billions of dollars. There are thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people who maybe struggle mightily and and learn things in the process, but fail. You don't see this is why also when I see politicians that are going around talking about how we all need to be entrepreneurs. Well, we can use the skills of entrepreneurs in our day to day lives. Sure. We should understand when to take risks and when to hold back. But uh, a country full of entrepreneurs is going to be a lot of people in the unemployment line. Entrepreneurship is tough and risky, um, but social media and media in general make it seem as though hard work and and brilliance will get you where you need to go. Sometimes, yes, they're, they're preconditioned or prerequisites, but they're not enough. I know plenty of really hardworking people. I know plenty of brilliant, hardworking, really decent people who struggle mightily and they don't feel like they are uh, compensated as well as they should be. They don't feel like they are appreciated in their field or even by those in their day-to-day lives. Um, And if you are a young person in this country, uh, particularly in the case of this article, if you're if you're part of young white America, as Bloomberg writes here, what is the answer? What are you supposed to think when your expectations don't meet up with your reality and you feel like your parents generation or your grandparents generation uh, had the American dream and now you don't? That's that's honestly what this boils down to. Um so, and I mentioned the, the statistics of opioid abuse and uh, uh, ODing from all kinds of drugs, ODing from alcohol. These are surging in parts of the country where there's not, it's not that there's dire poverty, but what you would consider uh, working class, predominantly white neighborhoods have this problem. And it is inescapable based on the numbers that this is going on. Uh, you also have marriage coming later in life uh, and less often in general, as cited in this piece. I think there's a, there's a, a growing sense of frustration. Um, and I, I got to tell you, when, when we sit down, I sit down, I talk to friends of mine about this in New York and elsewhere, uh, we can't help but notice that, uh, for example, what used to be a ticket to uh, a long and successful career, right, if you just worked hard, you know, you, you, you did what you needed to day to day in your field, but you would advance. You could stay with one company for a long time. You could provide for a family. That's very hard these days. Uh, providing for a family on your own feels increasingly insurmountable. Uh, and education as a ticket to a better life. Sure, the statistics show that having an undergraduate degree is helpful, though it's not a panacea. It doesn't make our, all your problems go away. Um, it really just has changed such that now the undergraduate degree is what the high school degree was for our parents' generation. So those with an undergrad degree, those who have a bachelor's degree, are where their parents' generation was with a high school degree. So the education arms race expands the and extends the length of time that we're in school, but the options haven't gotten better. In fact, now when you come out of college, and I have people, one of the most common messages I get uh, that's asking me a question instead of just telling me either love your radio show or, you know, 
hate your face, Buck Sexton, uh, on, on Facebook or on email is, you know, I'm, I'm just graduating college, I want to work in media, or I'm just graduating college, I want to work in the intelligence community, what can I do? And I, I don't not have, I, I'm not unwilling to share good advice or give answers to those questions. I just don't know what the answers are. Um, look, the, the way that this is all set up now for non-young white America, uh, there are lots of, uh, well, on campus you would, call it, you would call it an affinity group, right? But in, in the media and uh, even in government hiring, uh, there are narratives in place and there are structures in place to propel those who are not part of white America into, uh, into industry, into business. And there's also, for those who are having trouble, there's an oppression narrative that is very widespread, particularly in the inner cities, that certainly doesn't improve the economic outlook that a lot of young people have, but at least it gives them an explanation uh, of what's going on. Whether it's true or not, or how true it is, is a discussion for another time. But if you grow up in the inner city, the media is constantly telling you it's not it's not your fault. You have, you, you know, you're, you're oppressed by the system. You may be oppressed by racism, or you're oppressed by sexism, or but there's an explanation put in place, and so every success you have not only feels good because success feels good, or every obstacle you overcome, but you overcome those obstacles with the additional hurdle in place, you are told, of sexism, racism, structural inequality, all of that. What if you're just a, you're just a young white guy in some part of the country that never makes it in the news, and you just want to feel appreciated, feel like your work matters, have a family and support a family, and those things have become very hard, and they are very hard. No one's telling you that this is anything but, I suppose, you know, the result of your inability to do it yourself, which is not true, but that's the way that it feels. And I think that's how you see a lot of the despair coming uh, coming into the equation. That's where people feel like I'm 25, I'm 30, I'm 35, I'm 40, Uh why aren't I where I want to be in my career? Why Why doesn't it feel like I show up, I work hard, I try to do more, and it's working? It's getting me somewhere. Um, you know, it's. I'm, I, I have to say, I, I oftentimes when I have this discussion with a generation above me, uh, some of them with very, very distinguished careers and fancy degrees, I have to point out to them, you know, when you when you were applying to uh, Harvard in, not that you have to go to Harvard to be successful or happy or anything, but it just, it, it, this is that you can look at what is the, the pinnacle of the pathway, which was to go to an Ivy League or a fantastic uh, super elite school, and then everything would be fine. Even in the 70s, the acceptance rate for a place like Harvard was, I, I think it was about 30% maybe of applicants. In the 60s, it was definitely something like 30%. I mean, it's which isn't huge, but it's high. It's 2% now. And you're competing with kids from all over the world, literally. That wasn't the case in their parents' generation. Those uh, those of us who watch all this on social media, Instagram, about all the, the dot-com billionaires and all these young, super-rich guys in the tech space and the barons of Silicon Valley and all this stuff— uh, they don't really ever, until you work in that space, and I have family that's worked in that area, and I, I have many friends who have worked in it, they don't tell you that you're not just competing against people in Silicon Valley or competing against your year in school from the top schools. You're competing against people from all over the world. 
it is hyper competitive now. We are in a globalized economy where labor, yes, is often devalued in favor of assets and control. And I know I'm starting to sound a little revolutionary here, but um, there are reasons for the despair that people feel. And it's not because of anyone's inability to get things done or laziness. Society has been changing around us. It has not made things easier. And if you don't own and are not established and are not yet successful, the hurdles that are in place are more difficult than they used to be in many cases. And if you are a young white American, particularly young white American male, any inability you have to get through it all yourself People will point to it, whether openly or implicitly, and say, well, it's just because you're not working hard enough. Well, that's not the case. And this is why we have a lot of the frustration we do, and this is what led in part to some of the Trumpism that propelled Donald Trump into the White House. All right, I went long here. I'll be back in just a few. Stay with me. We're going to have an uh, Ossoff update. It's the final Ossoff Um uh, this guy's the Democrat. <laughs> See, now I'm playing into it. I know I'm I'm part of the Ossoff problem by talking about this congressional race like it's a big deal. But, you know, it is all over it. So we'll give you the updates on it. Be funny to see the folks over at uh, you know, HuffPost and Politico and all the rest of them. They're like, well, it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't a big deal anyway. I mean, you know, it doesn't really matter. I mean, you know, Trump is Hitler. So there'll be plenty of that. Um, what else did? The, oh, North Korea. North Korea is uh, surprisingly not in the news much at all today. And I I think that one would think, given the news cycle of the last few days, which has been suggesting that we were on the precipice of a possible, according to NBC News, of a possible uh, uh, strike, um, uh, first strike against North Korea, which I read that. I was like, well, that's, that's not... That's not real. That's not on the table. Um, but North Korea, we went from, oh, my, what are we going to do? Let's write a lot of think pieces about the prospect for another war on the Korean Peninsula, which has been happening over the last few days. We've gone from that to, well, let's talk about Trump's tax returns. How is it that North Korea yesterday is... Uh, a tremendous concern for all of us, and we have a carrier group in the area, and oh my, this could get out of hand really quickly. We worry about miscalculation. You notice that there was the, a, a breathlessness with the North Korea reporting. I, I do think a, at least a fair amount of it uh, was the usual media hyperbole. Right? Y- you say stuff that's scary people pay attention you say oh, we could have a nuclear war on our hands i'm not saying we could but we could it, then people are going to not change the channel but what has gotten better from yesterday to today not not a whole lot as far as i know it although there was a uh there was a series of stories oh well, here we have it here we have it on on cnn i know cnn official uh well official co- uh colon White House Pentagon miscommunicated on aircraft carrier's location. Here's what the piece says. As the White House was talking about sending a naval armada to the Korean Peninsula, the very ships in question were on their way to participate in military exercises in the Indian Ocean, 
some 3,500 miles in the opposite direction. Uh, direction. <clears throat> a senior administration official blamed a miscommunication between the Pentagon and the White House over reports that the aircraft carrier has not made its way to the Sea of Japan as an expected show of force to North Korea. Um, the official blamed the mix-up on a lack of follow-up with commanders overseeing the movements of the Carl Vinson aircraft carrier. So there's a lot of, lot of, oh my, what are we going to do over North Korea? There was a lot of that going on. And now here we are a day later. Nothing has been done, really. And we're just not hearing much about it. It's almost like media is a bunch of kids in the first grade playing soccer. You ever watch first graders play soccer? I know some of you are like soccer, but come on, it's not a sport. But they all they all just cluster around the ball. Well, when North Korea is the ball, everyone clusters around it. And in this case, well, I want to actually talk to you a bit about the missiles and the problem and what have we done about it. And But to hear all that, you'll have to stay with me through this break. He spreads freedom. Because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. Hey, welcome back. Our friend Rebecca Heinrichs is on the line. She is an expert in national security and missiles in particular from the Hudson Institute. Rebecca, great to have you. Good to be here. Thanks, Buck. All right. So we saw, we've been seeing a lot from and about North Korea uh, in the last uh, few days over the last week. Uh, One thing I wanted to ask you about specifically was this a parade that included what some say would have been a new ICBM. What's what's the consensus on that? Is is that like it was it an inflatable uh, was it like a, a rubber raft made to look like a giant missile or is that actually a new ICBM? We need to be worried. Well, um, we don't really know. Uh, North Korea will often uh, parade prototypes. Um, and so these are mock-ups of the missiles that they're working towards. They're trying to actually perfect the capabilities. But one of the things I always remind people is prototypes aren't nothing. Once you've figured out how to get a prototype looking very realistic, um, you're, you're really making progress even on the technical aspects of the missile. So the North Koreans are trying to achieve an ICBM, intercontinental ballistic missile, that can reach the United States. The things to look for or if they can get these missiles mobile, which they've tested a mobile ICBM before. Um, uh, and so you want to look at that because that way you can get it, you can get the missile closer to the shore and you can launch it further and deeper into the United States should you decide to do that. So um, that, that's what the North Koreans are trying to get after. And so they, they've, they've marched this, this missile that looks like it could be a prototype or a mock-up or it could be the real thing. I would suspect it's probably a prototype. And of what they have right now, what is the arsenal? If we look at the missile order of battle for North Korea, if we look at a lineup of what the stuff is that they have, uh, how advanced is it and and how much of it do we think comes from uh, the black market of international arms versus indigenous production and research capabilities? Those are great questions. They do both. Um, They work with Iran on their missile capabilities. We've seen Iranian um, engineers and scientists at some North Korean launches. Um, and then and the Iranians, of course, are moving forward with their um, missile programs um, uh, very quickly. Um, and then they're also just developing it on, on their own. We have seen some evidence that there are some Chinese pieces and parts of missiles that are, that are paraded 
um, the, the it's, it's called a tell vehicle, which is what the missile launched on in, in one of the recent parades um, a couple of years back. There was a Chinese tell vehicle. Um, but the U.S. government has always said that, yes, there is evidence that there is some Chinese entities that are cooperating with the North Koreans. We do not know whether or not that's endorsed by the Chinese government. I'd be highly suspicious of that. The Chinese do not want the North Koreans um, doing things overly provocative so that it gets them into trouble like what we're seeing right now with the Trump administration. We often, so read, North- we often read, Rebecca, that with each missile launch and with each nuclear test, uh, there is information that North Korea gets that's useful. Uh, what are what's the right. kind? What are the metrics that they're looking for? I mean, this this most recent missile launch, people were even on social media mocking it, saying, "Well, it, this didn't work very well." But there are others who were pointing out, you know, every time they they give it a go with one of these, they learn something. But what what are the kinds of things that they are learning from firing off these missiles? Yeah, I mean, they that that's an important point. Every time they test something. They are learning something. Now, this one, this one was, it blew up like seconds um, at launch. And there are rumors flying around that perhaps the United States or another country was involved in some sort of cyber sabotaging efforts to, to prevent the, the missile from getting far off the ground. That would prevent some of the data from coming to, you know, uh, it would prevent some of the data to come back so the North Koreans could learn from it. But generally, they're trying to figure out if it's a multiple stage uh, rocket, if they could get, you know, you need you need multiple stages, two stages in order to get the missile to really go far. Um, satellite launches, for instance, or long range ballistic missile launches. So they're trying to see if they can learn how to get both stages, one or two stages off. Um, they're learning how to use solid fuel. There's some suspicion that they're, you know, they're developing solid fuel versus liquid fuel. If they're using solid fuel, that's a more stable fuel source. And they can pop those solid fuel missiles off very short notice, um, which would be much harder for the United States to predict um, when they're going to launch. So they're, they're trying different things um, in order to advance the capability and make it more predictable and more reliable. And they're learning those things um, almost every launch, maybe with the exception of this most recent one, simply because it destroyed so early on. And Gen- uh, General McMaster, the National Security Advisor, when asked, of, of course, I-, I figured he would give this answer, but... When asked uh, how far away from an ICBM with a nuke as its payload North Korea is right now, he said, well, estimates on this vary widely. Based on the outside of government experts you talk to, what are we really looking at here? Because that's that seems to be why everyone now is so focused on North Korea. It's not just what it could do now. It's what it, what happens in a number of years when North Korea finally gets to the place where it has a nuclear payload on top of an intercontinental ballistic missile. Right. Well, the previous um, one of our previous Northern Command commanders, uh, General, uh, 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 who it was, Gort, must see, General Renuart, I think we had Admiral Gortney, General Renuart. Both of them have said previously that we can look at the modeling. It's sort of, you know, look at the, the space launches that they've actually conducted. And anytime you see them, successfully put a satellite into orbit. Um, everybody should, should recognize that that is essentially an intercontinental ballistic missile. They just haven't tested the re-entry vehicle, getting the missile to come back down into the atmosphere. But that technology um, is very sophisticated, very hard to do, and they've, they've done that. Um, so looking at that, and then what we know about some of their nuclear tests, uh, these previous Northern Com- Command commanders have testified before Congress that we do believe that if they really wanted to, it might be low probability, but the North Koreans might be able to actually get a nuclear warhead on an ICBM and fire one of these things off 
in the very near term. They, they possibly have the capability now, um, even if it would be unreliable. And when I say unreliable, I mean, it, you know, it might not go where they want it to go. But like I, I remind people, if it lands in Kansas, Kansas is bad enough. It doesn't have to hit New York. It doesn't have to hit, um, you know, a highly populated area for it to be a, an enormous disaster and tragic disaster with high casualties for the United States. So we don't know, but sort of open source data, you know, you've got some skeptics. They were always saying, oh, North, North Korea is never going to figure this out. But every time they continue to, to surprise a lot of analysts, they're moving right along and they're clearly dedicated to achieving this capability, which is why they won't quit. And how much threat mitigation can we do via missile defense systems? And I know anytime we talk about missile defense in one of our uh, allied nations in, in on or around the Korean periphery, China would get upset about that. But how, how effective do we think that would be at dealing with the emerging North Korean uh, ICBM technology. So the current, I would, I would tell you, the current technology that we see now, we're in good shape. We have um, different ballistic missile defense systems that can handle different kinds of incoming missiles. Um, if the North Koreans were to be foolish enough to launch uh, an ICBM and it was able to actually successfully um, be delivered to the United States, um, we, w- we do have what's called the Ground Force Defense System that's deployed in Alaska and, and Vandenberg, California. Um, we, we've got about we've got more than 30, uh, less than 40, because we're, we're deploying them now. Interceptors in the ground. We would shoot more than one at an incoming missile to make sure we hit it, and I'm and we do have high confidence that we would be able to hit one. Now, if they shoot more than one at us, we would you know we'd be in trouble, um, but. So far, they haven't proven that capability yet. And as they develop the ability to actually put countermeasures or decoys, that sort of, you know, balloons and um, maneuvering warheads on the missile, then those are increasingly difficult for the United States to handle with our missile defense system. So, again, we're going to stay ahead of the threat right now. Um, so far, I think we are. Um, but uh, as North Korea continues to work on this stuff, you know, we got to make sure that our defenses are at least one or two steps ahead. Rebecca Heinrichs, fellow at the Hudson Institute, national security expert. Great to have you, Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Buck. All right, team, uh, 844-900-BUCK, 844-900-BUCK. Uh, Going to hit a quick break here. We'll be right back. I got the Ossoff update here for you. Am I, is that that's how you say his name, right? Ossoff. I'm not making. Am I? Is that right, guys? Do we know Ossoff? Right. And we're we're gonna go Ossoff. All right. Um, the Ossoff update. Georgia's sixth congressional or Georgia's sixth congressional district. Sixty uh, percent so far for Mr. Ossoff out of the. Uh, is it eighteen candidates here? Uh, so. He's in the lead right now based on this live vote counter that I am I'm seeing here. So maybe this guy who did some work, did a little work for Al Jazeera. I, I think that, that it is a little unfair when they when they do the whole, oh, you know, Al Jazeera, uh, work for Al Jazeera. And the New Yorker wrote a piece saying that uh, that there were there were memes on social media with Ossoff and like like Osama bin Laden because he had worked for. And that that's not fair, uh, because he worked for Al Jazeera America. Um, but I wouldn't work for Al Jazeera, so there's that. Uh, he also doesn't live in the district. All the stuff I told you before, I, I suppose people just don't really care all that much about those issues. And when you've got Samuel Jackson and some celebrity 
uh, some other celebrity star power lined up on your side, you can do pretty well in a congressional district. So there we have it. I, I just as as a side note here, team. I in the break went to check out what the uh, Huffington Post had up. Huffington Post, Ariana Huffington's favorite website. It was. I've got to work on my Huffington. Democrats and the Republicans, they go to the Huffington Post for all the best analysis. Some of you probably don't even know who Ariana Huffington is anymore because she doesn't. She's no longer part of the Huffington Post, or she doesn't run it anymore. There were some amazing stories about how towards the end of the Huffington Post, they had to kind of explain to her that it really wasn't just because it was, it had her name. And now it's HuffPost, I think is what people call it. But Democrats and the Republicans. Uh, I went there to see what they were saying about the Ossoff race, just because I wanted, you know, I want to touch in, uh, touch, touch on liberal crazy land for a second here. And they have up, uh, they have up a their main post right now. You'd think maybe North Korea or this Georgia congressional race, because it's, it's live breaking right now. It's, it's legitimate news, legitimate news activity to be covering this thing. Uh, and their main story is, quote, kill Bill, end quote. And they have a big photo of Bill O'Reilly up. Now, I know the left hates O'Reilly, and he knows it, and everyone knows it. They're, that's not a surprise to anyone at all. But I, I would just ask you to run through in your head for a moment what the response would be. If kill, and I know, Kill Bill, it rhymes, and so they're taking some light. But Kill, insert the name of some other uh, TV personality, TV news personality in there. Would anyone defend that? Would anyone say that, oh, yeah... You know, kill so-and-so, that's fine, because ha-ha-ha. Um, now, I know they're not, well, I think this is really, this is really no, it's really not okay. That's why I'm talking about it. I was going to say, I know what they're trying to get at here. There's the movie, Kill Bill. The first one was good. The second one was, was not very good, I didn't think, but that's all right. This is also very violent. I, I As I get older, I, I don't like the the tremendous violence in the, in the movies, you know? I, the, a couple things. I never want to see somebody... You know, uh, I don't never want to see somebody hurl in a movie or on TV. You know, I'm always like, why did I, I don't need to see that. You can you can you can make it seem like that's happening without showing me. I always hate when they do that in a movie. And also, the gratuitous violence bothers me. I know I sound a little bit like I'm sitting here and I'm I'm you know knitting a sweater in my rocking chair or something. But you know what? That actually sounds really relaxing. <laughs> that's probably I should probably take that up. It sounds like a good way to spend some of my time. Back to the uh, Huffington Post here, though. Yeah, Kill Bill for Bill O'Reilly. Um, just. Well, what a disgrace! Uh, yeah, this this is the the good news for O'Reilly is that he's been so successful for so long and has had already such an impact and made so much money that no matter what happens at this point for him, um, and no matter what the left says, it it doesn't really. No, look, I'm sure it matters to him personally, but I'm saying in in terms of conservatism and and uh, the, well, he's even not necessarily a conservative, right? But he's a a right-of-center populist, maybe. He had such an impact. They've hated him for so long. They haven't been able to um, knock him off his perch as number one in cable news for now over a decade. Uh, but it's just fascinating to watch all these liberal outlets that will excuse Bill Clinton's admitted uh, offenses against women, um, uh, very serious ones, and immediately call for the uh, character 
assassination and uh, complete, well, of course, for the firing, but also also for the public humiliation um, of of, uh, of a fellow mem- member of the media in this way. I mean, they really they really hate him. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to get. They really hate him. Um, and you, you see that here. And I think the headline's unacceptable and it's tacky. And, but, I mean, the Huffington Post is all, all these left-wing sites. <laughs> I had somebody ask me recently, what's the Breitbart of the— well, they were trying to make a comparison. Well, what's the Breitbart of the left? And I was like, name a, name a, a, a news website that's left of center, which is basically all of them, but, you know, not all of them, but a lot of them. Name a Huffington Post, Daily Coast, Slate.com, the nation, the new republic, these are all these are all left-wing uh just left-wing loony bits. I don't know what else to say. They're crazy. Bruce in Florida on WFLF. What is up, sir? Hi. Good to talk to you. Good to um, talk to you, sir. Thank you. <laughs> Shields high. Shields high. There we go. Let it rip. So what's up? Uh, I think Trump's unpredictability often works in our favor, and the hyperbole of the press, like a, like about the North Korean situation, I help. I think it also helps us uh, if people like Kim Jong Un believe our press still. I mean, who wants to mess with somebody that's unpredictable? Well, you know, the, the whole Trump national security policy of we don't telegraph the playbook, it, it turns into a political Rorschach test, because if you like Trump, you say, yeah, unpredictability here is good. Why would you give the enemy your steps in advance? If you don't like Trump, you say, oh, yeah, they won't tell us the playbook because they don't have one. Right. So you, you see how this this depending on what one is believe what one is predisposed to believe beforehand, that's what determines uh, how how we react to it. You know what I mean? Well, I do, but who wanted Jeb Bush? I mean, talk about predictable. I mean, if predictability is a such a wonderful thing, Obama was predictable after the first three years he was in office, and everybody took advantage of it. Yeah, I mean, being being predictably weak is is not a it's not a good thing. Uh, so it, it depends on what we're talking about with predictability and. Sure, with issues like red lines, that is a statement of predictability. If if X, then Y. If A, then B. But in terms of how we will deal with an uncooperative North Korea going forward, I think leaving some of that uh, open to the um, the variations in policy that one may come up with based on what the North Koreans do, that makes a lot of sense to me. So I, I don't see that as problematic at all. Um, we'll we'll see. And and I I oh thank you for calling in, Bruce from Florida. Appreciate it. Shield tie. Uh, I am willing to give the Trump team time to do what they say they're going to do. They haven't done any. They haven't had any huge debacles, despite what the media said. The healthcare thing wasn't great, but Gorsuch was fantastic. There's some. There's reason for certainly reason for. Um, well, I'm thankful every day it's not Hillary Clinton, as I've said before. And then there's reason for some optimism on the policy side. We'll have to tackle that more another day. Uh, Please go to BuckSexton.com and uh, check out. We'll have stories from uh, the show today that we'll post there with some commentary. I'll also be uh, writing on a regular basis at BuckSexton.com. And uh, you can uh, join our email list. We'll be building an email list for the purposes of a newsletter. Also, Facebook.com slash BuckSexton. Click like there. We put a lot of stuff there, too. Uh, Download the podcast on iTunes, my friends. Subscribe to it. And until tomorrow night, Shields High.